irreverent, entertaining, cool. You're listening to LA Talk Radio. Max and friends, he says what he wants, ain't holding nothing back. This is Max and Friends. I'm your host, Max Tucci. Welcome back to another Max and Friends. If it's your first time joining, where have you been? I'm here 13 years. Well, nonetheless, I welcome you to the show, to this hour, to this moment. And let's just take a minute to be present and still right now and just be grateful for here we are. We got a great show today. I have a question for you. Have you ever taken the road less traveled? And what does that mean to you? What does it mean to take the road less traveled? You know, we all know the, the poem, Two Roads Divide, <laughs> and I took the one less traveled. Have you taken the road less traveled? I have many times. We have a guest coming on in just a bit. His name is Ed Hagem, and he's got a great book that's out right now, On the Road Less Traveled. We're going to talk about it here on Max and Friends. Let me get this lighting right. There you go. An unlikely journey from the orphanage to the boardroom. What does that mean? Well, we're going to find out. But before we get into the show, we've got to... I got to fill you in on a couple of things. I took last week off because here's why. I'm working on The Demonica Way, my cookbook, and it is occupying much time. I did a wonderful clubhouse yesterday. Join me on clubhouse at Mr. Max Tucci. Let's have a conversation there. I did a great one last, uh, just this week with Rolanda Watts called The Author's Journey. And what does it mean to be the author's journey? Well, it's been an incredible journey. And being on the road less traveled really is, I think, a road that I needed to be on to get to where I am with my book, The Demonica Way. I've got to give a shout out to Wendy Williams, my girl. You all heard that she's got COVID. And so the show is postponed until October 4th. So we're just sending love to Wendy right now. And, you know, take time to chill, Wendy. We need you. We need you. We need your fun spirit on, on the morning show, Wendy Williams. So there's a lot going on with the book, The Demonica Way. Photo shoot after photo shoot and traveling, and I was in Colorado, and I was in New York, and now I'm back in Florida, and next week is New York, and this week is a photo shoot, <laughs> another photo shoot. Why do I say all of this? Because when we did the, um, the author's journey, for all of you who have a book inside of you, the conclusion was, do not die with your story in you. You must share it, tell it, and do not by any means be discouraged by editors, publicists, publishers, <laughs> lit agents. If they tell you a no and a no and a no and a no, there is always someone that will finally tell you yes, because what you're looking for is looking for you. And what I strongly believe, strongly, strongly believe that if you can see it in your mind, you can create it in your reality. Even furthermore, when you can see it in your mind, not just if, but when you can see it in your mind, you can create it in your reality. We've got some great music tonight on the show here on Max and Friends. And if you're tuning in, tweet me at Max Tucci, Instagram me at Max Tucci, be part of the show. Let me know what's going on in your life. And remember, you can catch us on all podcasting platforms. 
every single one of them. <laughs> and of course, from Podbean. And right here on the home station of LA Talk Radio, where I've been for 13 years, you know, I read an article the other day that says most people who listen to podcasts love to go directly to one source like latalkradio.com. So if you think that you have what it takes to be a podcast host, podcast host, <laughs> I, I jump around because I'm so excited for my, my interview here on Maximize. But if you think you've got what it takes to be the podcast host, then reach out to here at LA Talk Radio to Sam and see if there's a spot for you. And maybe maybe there's a show inside of you that you feel is part of your story and part of your road less traveled. My guest tonight, wow, wow, wow. We are going to be inspired, motivated, educated. You know, that's the purpose of Max and Friends. If I'm not looking always at the camera, here's why. Because I know that you all have sent me messages and DMs and tweets. Why don't you always look at the camera? First of all, I have never done the camera thing until just this year. <laughs> Number one. Number two, the camera here on, on LA Talk Radio and Max and Friends. Number two, there's a lot going on. I've got notes, I've got notes, I've got a whole bunch of things going on. And so I'm used to just being behind the mic with no camera in front of me and doing my thing. But now that I'm being transparent and you can welcoming you all into my space, um, it becomes, you know, my attention goes to other areas. So when my guest is on, you're like, how come you don't look at your guests when you speak? Well, because I'm doing a million other things here too. And then I also getting like little, you know, notes in my ear and things to do. So it's not that I'm not interested. I'm, I'm setting myself up for my next question. It's called segueing. And so there's a great book I read, which is called The Courage to Be Disliked, Japanese Philosophy. And um, I live by it. And if you like me, I love you. And if you don't like me, I love you even more. So here's the deal. Are you ready to be inspired? I want to hear about your story about being on the road less traveled. Renee Fleming wrote a beautiful quote, a moving personal history that demonstrates the importance of being faithful to one's core values. So what are your core values? What is your heart virtue? What is your purpose? What is your destiny? You don't have to answer me right now. And hopefully, if you're young and you're tuning in, you don't have the answer just yet, because that would be a little bit, you know, there's so much abundance out there. So tap into all of the abundance. But my guest tonight, today, this morning, wherever you're tuning in, thank you again for tuning in to Max and Friends. Ed Hey Jim is the son of a Syrian immigrant. He's a seasoned Wall Street executive with more than 50 years of investment experience. He's an author, an orphan, a motivator, an inspirer, <laughs> and my guest here on Max and Friends. Welcome to Max and Friends, Ed. How are you? Nice to be here, Max. I want to interview you. You've had a fabulous <laughs> background as well. <laughs> Thank you. Well, we, you know, just before the show, we have Greenwich, Connecticut in common, Delmonico's. You've dined many times. Colorado, Los, I was born in Los Angeles. Go on. Colorado, Colorado LA. <laughs> <laughs> right? And here we are in this now moment on Max and Friends. Before we get into the book, which is really, I, I, it's the kind of book where there's only been another book I'm going to tell you that I didn't want to put down like this. And that was the book called Night. And I was reading it. And it's just the kind of book you can't put down because you don't know where your road is going to be next or what turn is in it next. So let's just get into the genesis of Ed A. Jim. And how did all of the road less travels start? What was your first road? Well, my first road was kind of rough because, you know, as a child, I basically were was in 15 or 20 different places before I was 18 years old. And, mm -hmm. you know, it sounds terrible. The orphanages, foster homes. You know, mm -hmm. father left me a couple, three times. When I was mm -hmm. three, he kidnapped me. It's all in the book and told me my mother had passed away. So the first part of the journey was really on a road less travel. And I continued to sort of go on that way. And when I went to college, I was on a road less travel. I was probably the only poor kid at school. 
Everybody else mm. was fought. You know, parents were unloading their cars, and I was traveling along with my suitcase with the wrong clothes, and no, and I got off the bus to get to the college. So I traveled along that road for for a long, a, a lot of years, and gave me a, you know a lot of a lot of advantages. People mm. say, "Oh, it's terrible. Your background was just something that." you know, really must have hurt you. No, we recognize when you spend your time in 15 or 20 different places before you're 18, you become adaptable. You seek change. Mm. And I, I tell people, I used to adapt change. I used to love to have change. And when, when the boss said, who wants to go to Japan? I went to Japan. Who wants to go to China? I went to China. Who wants to take on this job? I took it on. But I shouldn't answer the question too long. My daughter works for TED Talks and says, dad, Answer the question shortly. Don't give them too much. So that's, that's the beginning. That, that's the roads. And I started those roads early. And I, for the rest of my life, even right now, this what you just said before listening to you, everybody's got a book in them. And it took me until mm. I was 75 years old to really start this book. And it was, I was actually forced to do it. But the book did enormous things for me. So I recommend, as you just said, everybody's got a book in them. You got to wait a little while and have, you know, if you get a few, a few tracks on the road. But it, you, that book will do wonders for you. It'll teach you a lot about yourself. And, about mm, yourself. and we'll get into that. We'll get into what it taught you. But, you know, we also have another thing in common, which is being kidnapped. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we can laugh about it because here we are. My joke was, if this is the family that kidnapped me, I did pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> but um, when I was little, you know, we were traveling to our house in Italy. And there was a setup where my father, uh, his car broke down and our, my mother's car took off and the driver kidnapped my mother, my sister and I and a nanny and brought us to some warehouse. And, you know, the, the trauma that most people think I've experienced wasn't that traumatic because I was young and, you know, I just thought we were going on a journey. But for you, you were kidnapped by your father. So what does that mean being kidnapped by your father? Well, mom and dad got divorced. And it's, it's a long story and it's in the book. Uh, he was a very difficult guy. If you've read Leon Uris's book, Abraham, he was Abraham. He was a mm. powerful Middle Eastern, you do it my way. Anyway, she put up with it for about six years. Then she divorced him. He didn't even show up at the trial. And she got custody and took me from Los Angeles to St. Louis, where she lived. Mm. She wasn't welcome there. She's one of five siblings. And her father said, we don't need another two mouths to feed. So they were, I wasn't terribly well kept. And my father arrived. He saw how I was being treated. So instead of taking me to a movie on his visiting day, he got one visiting day a month. He got in the car and drove me back Highway 66 back to Los Angeles. And a few weeks later, I, I am, my impression is he told me my mother had died. And I carried mm -hmm. that idea that my mother had died for the rest of my life, basically, until I was 60 years old. There's another story there. So he just and, and we lived together for about two years. And during that period, he was away for about half the time because he was a merchant marine. And mm -hmm. then when the war broke out, he disappeared in the war for four and a half years. And I ended up in five Catholic foster homes. Mm. Where were those foster homes spread out? Well, you know, it started out, you know, in those days, everybody was kind of poor. People remember, you know, we, we live in a very affluent society all across the board almost. In those days, people took on orphans for the money. And the first family mm. was not very good. It was abusive. It was difficult. Mm -hmm. I wasn't Cinderella. They didn't put me mm -hmm. to work, but it wasn't good. And they didn't treat me very well. Each orphan, each cost home after that seemed to get better. And the final one, which was only six months, unfortunately, was excellent. And I took mm. from that what a real family is like. The Rob family took me in. They only had one son. They wanted another one. They treated me like that other one. At least mm. for six months, I, I felt like I had a really good deal. Then, unfortunately, or fortunately, my father showed up after the war, and I flew across country from Los Angeles back to New York to be with him.
for mm. a year. And I, now, I when you say home. when you say you're with the Rob family, now this is the first time. Was this the first time you had a, like a sibling? You said they I had another son. The other, other, the other foster homes had siblings. This mm. was the closest one. He was my age, and then mm. and there were in the other foster homes. There were two or three other siblings. So I was mm. kind of a second class citizen. Had the smallest mm. room. You know, I didn't quite get the same kind of clothing the other kids got. But this place, these people, they, they immediately put me in the music lessons. You know, they treated me just like their son. And so mm. you know, I got that feeling and I captured that. And I, you know, carried it with me the rest of my life. Yeah. You know, my mother was a refugee from Lithuania. So when they um, escaped, she lived in DP camps for five years. So I heard, you know, growing up the story of that. And then it inclined me to then work with orphanages here, actually in South Florida, one called SOS Children's Villages. So I work with this organization and we bring in children from all over. And it's interesting to see when there is finally that core, that 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 purpose of of, of belonging, of being part of a family, how it really develops and changes a young person's mind. So did this family give you, you think the courage to actually then go back with your father? Did you want to go back with no, him? No, I, I, I actually, when the telegram came, we, she was disappointed, obviously. And I was yeah. disappointed to some extent because I finally found peace. I mean, mm. you know, what you read, you read the book where I was, I was a kid who used to have nightmares and I get sick and all things like that. And all of a sudden that stopped. I started to gain weight because I basically had found a stability. And then mm -hmm. the old man, but I did want to reunite with my, my father because he'd written letters, you know, on a regular basis, kind of on a, you know, regular basis, written letters to me, you know, telling me how great I was and how, what he was doing and so forth. So I wanted to reunite with him. He was my only family. So I did fly across country and we did spend a year together in a hotel mm -hmm. room. Well, we spent some time in the, in the YMCA on 434th Street and then, you know, in a hotel room in Coney Island. That was quite a unique experience. Coney Island, yeah. You know, Coney Island is quite... Coney Island is still an experience. I can only imagine I've it then. The door. Sure, not a problem. My guest tonight is the one and only Ed Hey Jim. The book that I hope you all get is called On the Road Less Traveled, An Unlikely Journey. <laughs> yep, An Unlikely Journey from the Orphanage to the Boardroom. You know, you mentioned the word peace. What does peace mean to you today, Ed? Peace is basically understanding yourself. Mm. You know, slowly come to grips with who you are and what you've done. And of course, for me, I, I, I gained peace by giving back. I've been so lucky all my life that I really yeah. owe the society. I, owe, I dedicated, I dedicated the, the book to the University of Rochester, to Harvard Business School, and to the United States of America. I yeah. really believe they, it gave me a chance. And that's one of my messages, is anything is possible in this country. In fact, I think there's greater opportunity today than there ever has been. Yeah. And I, that's the message that I want to get across with the book. I have a modest Absolutely. goal of having you know, every freshman in the United States read the book so the, he or she will feel that she's on her way or he's on her way. You know, it's easy for people to say that they are a victim, especially for someone who comes with, you know, let's call it a broken family, lived in an orphanage, and they can easily play the victim role. Have you ever played that victim role? I love you, Max. You come out with the right exact. My, one of my real messages here is try never to be a victim. Mm. Use the energy. People use energy being a victim. Use that mm -hmm. energy to find out what's next. That's, that's a perfect, you, you really got the crystal of really the underpinning of the book, which is basically, I could have been a victim many times along the way. And mm -hmm. I never chose to be a victim. Oh, for maybe for an hour or a day or a week or a month, I might have taken, but I took that energy and I sent it in the direction of what's next. What's next not easy. You need that energy. But if you dissipate the energy in being a victim, like many people do, you lose it. It's gone. 
Absolutely. You know, I've, I've learned over the years that many people become being, they become addicted to being the victim and they become yeah. addicted to the drama, right? Instead of the resolution or the solution. You know, if you focus on being a victim, it's really interesting. You can all, all things you can get involved with, what somebody's diabolical, somebody's doing this to you, and the system is doing this and the society. No, no, take that energy and place it on what you want to do next. And of course, mm. I believe in flow of, of life. If you focus next, you'll find it. There'll be that, there'll be that road that's less traveled that you'll find and, and travel it. But if you spend that time, and boy, you know, if you find victims, people can talk on and on about how they've been mistreated, that they've been prejudiced, and so on and so forth. Doesn't do you any good, mm. usually. You gotta go on. And, and so how, how did you do, but how did you say, you know what, I was, I was told my mother died, I was, a, I was an orphan, my father left, I was in all these different orphanages, and then life we haven't even gotten into, this is just your childhood, we haven't gotten into your education and travel and marriage and children. How did you say, you know what, I'm not going to be a victim? For those who are listening tonight, you know, they, and they are struggling with victimhood, let's say, what do you say to them to say, you don't have to be the victim because I... Anything is possible, take yeah. that energy and use it. Actually, and I had anger. I had anger mm. because I was a victim. I took the energy, that anger, and I placed it forward. What's mm -hmm. next? You know, what, what kinds of possibilities are available to me that I can place my energy into? Whatever it might be, a job, my family, you know, uh, an, an effort, uh, you know, giving back, whatever it might be. But take mm -hmm. that energy and then try to, try to just eliminate that. In fact, what you said at the beginning of the program, remember the, the Japanese expression? Mm -hmm. If you love me, I love you. If you, if you hate me, I still love you. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not at the point where, you know, turn the other cheek or, you know, love your enemies. But you, if you could do some of that mm. and, and, and also understand people, people have come from certain backgrounds. They have certain prejudices. Some of it's not their fault. It's mm. your fault if you spend time on it. But if you take that energy, and it's, it's, it's important, you take that energy and place it what, you know, what's next, whatever it might mm. be. And well, you know, we're going to talk about what's next because that's what? become a, uh, we're going to talk about what's next because that's become a mantra, I think, for your life. But before we get to the what's next, let's talk about the what's now with your father. Was there ever that moment where you actually like hated your father? Never hated him. In fact, the second ghostwriter and I had one of mm. eight. She was a she wrote many bestsellers, a wonderful lady, mm. great writer. She wanted me to hate my father. I refused to because mm. I didn't hate him. He because it doesn't come across in this book. And I'm thinking, how can he, someone he, not hate someone? Unconditional love. Now, as, yeah. as a businessman, I found many of my, some of my friends who lost everything. Okay. Mm. They have demons. My father from 19, 18 years old to 29 mm. became very wealthy. Between 1929 and 1933, he lost everything. Not mm. only lost everything, but his mother died. And she was very important to him. So and his father was okay, but not special to him. So he lost really everything. He said, to my, said to Ed, you know, he said, I had a choice between committing suicide and driving across country. And luckily wow. for me, he drove across country. But <laughs> so, you know, it was a very difficult, and you carry those demons the rest of your life, especially in the early life when you really, you know, lose it all. And then mm -hmm. he got married in, in two weeks. That's in the book, unfortunately. And they didn't get along with, with his wife. And so things never really went right for him. In fact, is if you look at when he was born in 1900, mm -hmm. it was a really mm -hmm. difficult period. You know, I, I always I, I tell young people, think about context. You know, mm. people in 1900 have very few good years. You know, you had the, mm. the Spanish play, the First World War, Depression, another war, you know, and even the 70s weren't great. So, mm. you know, he had so many. And so as writing the book and I'm trying to understand him, I understand he probably did his best the job he could do. He was a radio person. He couldn't mm. he couldn't get a job on land. He ended up being a merchant marine. Being a merchant marine, you have to be at sea between six and nine months on each, each of these ships. 
He was not really accepted as a merchant marine because he was so different from the other merchant marines. And so he even had a difficult work life. So I really understood, started to understand him. So there was points in time we, when I got to be about, when I was in the Navy, what happened basically, he started to disagree with everything that I would do. And so we did, we did have, we, we were estranged from, oh, age 25 on. When I quit the Navy, he said, you can't quit the Navy. Because he, if he'd have stayed in the service, he'd have been, he thought he would have been happy. Then, of course, you know, I went, became an engineer and I became successful. He said, oh, stay. I went to Harvard Business School. I took all the money in the world I had. He said, you shouldn't do that. Stay as an engineer. And he did, then he started not to understand. And the worst thing happened when I married Barbara or wanted to marry Barbara. He was against that, too. Wow. She looked like my mother. Wow. I never saw a picture of my mother, so I didn't know mm -hmm. what she, my mother looked like, which was wow. unusual. And he was against her. You know, she had particularly ethnic background, had the same ethnic background as my mother. And so wow. he, took, he took this disliking to her right away. They eventually came to a peaceful coexistence, but he never really accepted her. And that was mm -hmm. a, that was unacceptable. To me. So we became estranged, but we still wrote letters and we still have what I call peaceful coexistence. And the birth of my second son, you read that in the book, we kind of came together. We never really came together. And he died suddenly. And as you'll find mm. in the book also, for the first time in my life, I went and got help. Because I was, mm. you know, at my age, when we grew up, you didn't get help. You got no, help. No, of course. You're, you're, you're worried about you. But I went and got help. And the woman who get, worked with me was wonderful. She had me write letters to my father. He was dead. Mm. And then I had to take his position and write letters back to me answering. Wow. I did that for six months. And then it really solved a lot of problems because I started to get in his boots and I started to answer the questions that I was asking. And, yeah. you know, and I, I got some of the answers, not all of them, but, but it did help me. But it was, yeah. it was it, so that we did become estranged from, you know, for about 20 years. It was, it was mm -hmm. he, once you know, he just disagreed with, and Barbara was so important to me. I said, you know, you just can't do this. You have to yeah. accept it. Well, you created a boundary. You know, you said peaceful coexistence, and those are two powerful words because peace, I think, is what we as a society just need in general. And coexistence, if we're in coexistence, we're usually in peace. So how do you create a peaceful coexistence with well, someone that, who abandoned you? You accept the fact you don't know, Max, you know. Mm. You, you really can't get in someone else's shoes unless you really work on it. And it, mm. the book helped me off understanding my relationship with my father. But when I was mm. going through it, wife, I had family, I'd work. You don't have the energy and the time really to figure mm. that out. So yeah. what you, you opt for, which, and I really wanted coexistence. I didn't want to give up. No one should give up their parents. I don't, I mean, even if they're terrible, you really should try as best you can to keep as close a relationship as your parents because they're very I important agree. to you. And the more, the closer you are, the more you understand yourself, you know, really wild experience. I thought for years I was only my father because I didn't have my mother. When I finally mm. met my mother, I realized I was at least half my mother. So, yeah. I, I, but you built, and it, it work is the same way. You get a terrible boss. And I had a terrible boss at Lehman Brothers. And I built a coexistence with him. It wasn't peaceable, but it was a coexistence because I forced that. And that means little <laughs> actions that you take, you make sure that there's still a relationship. Yeah. No matter how minimal it is. My father and I, we wrote letters. And that mm -hmm. kept our, our existence together. And it, it, it was peaceable. There was no anger. You know, I just, he, I, he just basically disagreed with me. So, you know, and he finally came around and said, I don't understand you anymore. But he was willing to stay, keep the relationship. Once you turn yeah. it off, then you lose it. And you lose a lot that way, I think. And, you know, there is a great, you know, all the movies end when you hug your father and you both finally come together. It didn't happen to me, but yeah. it can happen. And I, I yeah. wish those people who have difficulties end up with that ending. <laughs> you know, or, yeah, it's like, you know, meet Joe Black. At the end, you just want to be, you know, just one more hug. So I have a note here that says to ask you this question. And 
I'm going to rephrase it because I want to ask you this question before that question, but it says you're challenging early days. Do you believe that your early days were challenging? Well, as a child, you're very resistant. Mm -hmm. You have a huge resistance. There's nothing you can do when you get transferred from one schoolyard to the other. Mm -hmm. And it's a huge learning experience, finding your place in a schoolyard. And if you do that mm -hmm. three or four times as a youngster, you develop, you know, as I believe the difficulties I had turned out to be advantages. Those disadvantages yeah. produced, you know, I was resilient. I was perseverant. Mm -hmm. And eventually I became empathetic with other kids mm -hmm. who grew up like me. But no, yeah. I, I believe that, that when you go through, a child can go through almost anything. Although I did end up with these nightmares and sicknesses and I was very, very, mm -hmm. very small. I, I was mm -hmm. I, I, at, at 10 years old, I weighed 50, 60 pounds. I mean, I was wow. four foot six. And, you know, so there was probably some, you know, biological problems too that affected me. And, you know, you don't feel, you know, you basically you're in a, in a system and everybody else mm -hmm. has got parents and you don't. So you feel very the nurturing. Different. It's the nurturing that you're lacking. That's what I tell young college kids. I said, recognize not only will you think you're different, but you are different when you go to school and everybody else has got parents and you don't. Well, I want to talk about that. So what was it like for you to finally arrive at college and now here there, here's the perfect family dropping off Johnny to school and here you are. <laughs> Showing up, well, you know, the, 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 the turning point in my life was getting a scholarship, and so when I arrived mm -hmm. at college, off getting off the bus and with my suitcase, what I call my wrong, my leather jacket and the wrong clothes and all the rest of my euphoria lasted probably a half an hour because I walked along <laughs> to the dormitory and all these kids are unloading their toolies and their parents are carrying their clothes in and so forth. My roommate was a, a non-talking physics major, so he'd already set up everything in the room when I got there. And the first week of school was. Used to have fraternity rushing before school started. I got rejected by all the fraternities. I didn't write clothes, and I felt well, I felt different, and they felt mm. that as well. So I was, you know, it was a bad deal. You know, then we got on the, the dormitory football team. We lost all of our games. You know, it was a very tough year. And I tell the kids, freshman year, you just get through. You'll make mm -hmm. it. Trust me. But just get yeah. through it. And and so I slowly, I got a haircut. You know, I got crew cut. I bought a tweed jacket. But I had to work most of the time, which was bad, a bad mm -hmm. deal, too. I waited tables and so forth. But, but I eventually got through it. And uh, then you just yeah. get through it. But I was resilient. And I think kids ha these kids have that resilience. They can't get down on themselves. That's what happens. You know, that's a great word, resilience. And a lot of kids don't know exactly what it means. But right. what does resilience mean to you? And, you know, for the kids who are listening tonight, we thank you for all for tuning in. The book that we're talking about is On the Road Less Traveled. Ed Hagem is with me. We're talking about resilience now. What does resilience mean to you, Ed? In it, while you're a child, you come across many instances where you actually perform extremely well in a difficult circumstance, getting mm -hmm. kidnapped like you did. You got went through the kidnapping. You know, you went through it. You you, you went through it. You finished it off. And then mm -hmm. you know, I went through the kidnapping. I went through a bunch of schoolyard difficulties. You know, every time you go to a schoolyard, there's a rites of passage. But once you mm -hmm. get through that rites of passage, you develop that resilience to say, I can do it again. Absolutely. You know? And that's why I say to people, you know, people from very comfortable backgrounds tell me, well, we can't put our kids in orphanages. And, you know, they live in Greenwich, Connecticut. What should we do? Mm -hmm. I say, send them to Outward Bound. Yeah. Knowles. Get them to work. My daughter had, had drove an ice cream truck for a summer. Mm -hmm. It was a fantastic experience ever. Nothing's yeah. worse than an ice cream truck because she came home with the ice cream truck. And she said, Dad, I'm getting this great job. I got this ice cream truck. All I have to do is plug it in. I said, plug it into what? She said, oh, 220. I said, we don't have 220. You know, so you learn that she had to sell all the ice cream every day because she went back with any kind of ice cream in the truck. He'd take the truck away and give it to somebody else. But Absolutely. Great experience. And, you know, my grandson spent 30 days in the rain on a Knowles trip in Alaska. 
those those that builds resistance. You, Absolutely. You uncomfortable in your life. And you, you used to build resistance was the service. You know, you went mm. into the service. They, they you know, I was a, a naval a naval midshipman. First year they mm. shave your heads, you know, and, and make you live in a you know in a in a in a, in a battleship you're six high. You scrub the deck. You you, you clean the latrines. You you can you, you get through it. And once you get through, you that, get through you build, it. You build this confidence. Not only resistance, but you know, it, it evolves in, into perseverance. Because you keep saying, absolutely. I'm going to get through this. Don't worry. <laughs> you know, it's true because you know when my father died, I was eight years old, and at eight years old, you, I just thought he was going to come back at some point. You know, I didn't know he was actually dead. And so it never really shook me until I realized other families, like their fathers were coming home for dinner. Yeah, and right. so I was like, why isn't mine? You know, but it still never shook me because I figured one, you know, he was on a trip or he was in Italy and he would come back. So we do get through it. And, you know, patterns and pathologies really, I think when they're disrupted at an early age, it's easier to look at life and say, I'm going to get through it. But education, you know, I'm looking at the time and it's flying by the illusion of time. We've got so much to talk about. We've got to talk about Wall Street and, of course, education. And I want to know why you chose the title On the Road Less Travel. But before we get there, we're going to play a song right now. We're going to take a break. If you need to get a glass of water, get yourself a glass of water. If all of you who are tuning in need to take a break, now's the time. We're going to be right back. The song that you mean so much to me on Max and Friends. My guest when we're back is Ed Hey Jim. The book On the Road Less Travel. Go buy it right now and meet us on the other side. We'll be right back. I'm your host, Max Tucci for Max and Friends. Walking around trying to figure it out. Missing part that's lost inside of me. Every once in a while there would be some teardrops hitting the ground wherever I go. It's not easy for me to let you go, even though I pretend you didn't bother me. But I can't stop thinking about you, that you mean so much to me. Knowing we were close, having so much to say about you, watching you walk away without saying anything towards something that could have been different right now. All I was trying to do was to show my love to you by waiting for your blessing, knowing. She means so much to me Every day, wherever I go The pain of losing you Made me think about you Even more But I can't stop thinking about you That you mean so much to me when we were close, having so much to say about you, watching you walk away without saying anything towards something that could have been different right now. All I was trying to do was to show my love to you, waiting for your blessing, knowing. That you mean so much to me It's hard to live my life 
side by my side I regret something what I should have told you It's not easy for me to let you go One day my heart will let you go With the pain of losing you I will hide my broken heart That you mean so much to me That you mean so much to me Memories of you will never fly away from my heart Memories of you will never fly away from my heart That you mean so much to me Memories of you will never fly away from my heart Memories of you will never fly away from my heart That you mean so much to me That you mean so much to me I can't stop thinking about you That you mean so much to me Knowing we were close Having so much to say about you Watching you walk away Without saying anything towards something that could have been different right now All I was trying to do was to show my love to you I waited for your blessing Knowing that you mean so much to me That you mean so much to me This is Max and Friends. I'm your host, Max Tucci. My guest today is Ed Hey Jim. That song was That You Mean So Much to Me by our pal Thomas Hibner. We're back now. You know, I'm, I love the book because there's a quote in there that I use almost every day that the only constant in life is change. What does change mean to you, Ed? Well, I, I think that's really what everybody should be focusing on. At least I, I, once a year, you should go out and sit down and say, What's changing? Because that mm. really allows you to succeed, allows you to have an interesting life. It allows you to communicate. Changes almost everything. In fact, in today's world, it's even more than it ever has been because technology is changing everything that we're doing. But I, mm -hmm. I believe that basically my childhood allowed me to embrace change. And I found very myself successful in change. So I was willing to take any change. So you take a, a position, you look at my financial career. I changed when I realized that the organization I was with was not doing what I thought they should do. And looking yeah. back in the case, at least a couple of them, they actually failed because they refused to do things that they had to do. And that's, that, that actually goes right across in almost everything you do in your family, in your business, and also in giving back. When you yeah. work for any Mossonary institution, you know, I went to work at the University of Rochester. They were not doing the work and development they should have done. And uh, uh. I quit the board. They asked me to come back, and I ended up being the chairman. We did development. And we changed the university. We gave it an inflection point because we mm -hmm. did what they had to do. They had to change. They had to basically mm -hmm. start to focus on bringing the alumni back up. I made my wonderful statement. I said, there's no such thing 
as a successful university without a generous and supportive alumni? End of question. And we That's did right. Over eight That's years. right. You know, I'm on the board at the Lehman Center in the Bronx, and it's the same I thing. We have the we have the college great. there. It's like bring the bring bring those who have succeeded back into the theater is always my mantra. But you know, you are the poster child for no experience is ever wasted. That is for sure. No experience <laughs> is ever wasted. I that. That's good. I like that. <laughs> you know, um, change, change, change. You know, there's a great saying that I was saying that change doesn't change until you change. So going to school, how did that change your life? Oh, tr tremendously. Because I, you know, I, I actually, I, I loved working and I loved, I loved studying and, and being able to use what I, what I was studying. But I found out actually the, the talent, the, the, the human experience was much more important to me looking back. You know, I, 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 my junior year, I was taking organic chemistry, physical chemistry, but I also started a humor magazine. And I learned a lot in the classroom, but I learned much more putting 30 people together to produce something that didn't exist. Mm. You know, so the school did that. The human relationships to me, and again, it's each to his own. And I would say in my book, you'll talk about finding your passion. My passion turned from the inanimate chemistry, mm. mathematics into the animate, into mm. finding what made people motivate, what motivated people and how can mm. I motivate myself to help them do their job. And you know, you know, my, my, my mantra is I really want to see people do better than they think they can. Mm. Then when you have that mantra, you end up doing better than you think you can. And that's Absolutely. And I didn't know that until I got into it. And then, then you develop other kinds of, of, of attitudes, such as don't worry about who gets the credit. If you can, put, if you can work that in, you, don't, you accomplish almost anything. And so, Absolutely. That, and so the school did that for me. And then, of course, going to Harvard Business School, you know, my grades in college were not great because I did lots of other things and I had to work and so on. Going to Harvard Business School proved to me that I could basically compete because here were, you know, half the kids went to Princeton. You know, they used to introduce me as the, the kid from the small school in upstate New York, you know. And, you know, it, it was even it was a worse, worse experience than college because these kids all came from fine homes. They were wonderful people, but they, they were totally different than me. You know, it was, just, it was just a totally different experience. And so I had to go through a change again. You know, Rochester had a few local people that kind of like me, but at Harvard, it was it was very different. And those days, absolutely they, they didn't have scholarships. You know, I went there and paid my way and and, and there weren't there are no orphans or poor kids. In those days. <laughs> right. So, you know, it's fascinating how all of this change has made you who you are today. Who were your mentors along the way? And for those who are listening tonight, how do you recommend linking up with a mentor? Well, I, I want to preface this. Your mentors, you got to recognize, are in most cases human beings. Mm -hmm. And what you, what I found myself doing, and this is looking back and writing the book too, is I took from my mentors or people that I respected their best traits or the traits that I wanted to accumulate or copy. And I'll be mm -hmm. very humorously, you would really love to have Winston Churchill's perseverance, but it's not his drinking habits, right. or Steve Jobs' creativity, <laughs> but not his personality. And so along the way, I, well, Jim Fullerton, chairman of, of the board of, of, of Capital Research, he could take a complex financial subject, not only get it across to people, but he could make it humorous. And I yeah. worked on being just like Jim. I never could quite get to where Jim was, but he could capture a crowd just like that. And, he, and there's always humor in it. And, but, but he took a complex con concept and he got it across to people and he didn't make people feel that they were, you know, they didn't know what they were doing. 
But each mm. one of my mentors, you start out, you know, and I look back, I so many mentors, you know, the, the, the mechanical drawing professor my freshman year at Rochester, who basically, you know, took got me through that course. But he also ended up mentoring me when I was head of the finance board, mentored me at the Humor Magazine, and he basically, he was interested in me. And so one of the things is your mentors have to be interested as well, and they have to be interested in you. But I had a lot of mentors. And and even I had some I, I think some of the most one of the most important mentors was a fellow who taught me what not to do. Mm. Lou Glucksman at Lehman Brothers. I learned what what you should never do as a manager. Mm. And of course, and what is, what? Well, <laughs> what is that? What? What is that? What's the secret, Ed? He wasn't interested in people. I yeah. see. I believe that business starts off with culture. Culture mm. eats everything else. Culture, strategy, people, and then finally numbers. And he was all numbers, you know, mm. and he didn't, he wasn't interested. He wasn't interested in people. Yeah. And he also was interested in power. I always try to give power away, you know, give somebody else power. And you have to live by, you have to walk the walk. I mean, I, I, I give myself credit in that for 20 years as a CEO or the lean man in the company, I only paid myself the most once in 20 years. So you got to wow. walk the walk. If you say other people are more important than you are, you know, David Kearns at, at Xerox was like that. You know, mm -hmm. He was a wonderful man. And I guess one year when I when I sold my company to Zerk, I think I made more money than he did. Mm. He, he said the salesmen here make more money than I do. He was a kind of man like that. He was he was interested in people, and that, yeah. that's what I that's another person I copied. He was one of the wonderful people in the world. I mean, and but that's a the, the negative people people that are not interested in people. They don't interest in culture, and culture mm -hmm. is an everyday experience. Now I yeah yeah you know, it, it's you. You know, I had a woman at Furman Sales who would basically tell me if somebody got married, somebody was having problems, somebody was one one young man on the floor was giving his kidney to his brother. Wow. Called him up and said, Wow. Nikolai said, Wow. That's what mm. I said. And and you know that you build a culture and you, you keep adding to culture. You find yeah. out companies with great cultures live on forever and companies with lousy culture die. Lehman did die because the culture Yeah, no. Died. And I know, you know. I, we had the conversation before Lehman Brothers was going to open up in Del Monaco. <laughs> but you know, what's fascinating is culture is so true and it, humanizing and having empathy and compassion for people, I think really puts us into a place of, of being able to just at the end of the day, sleep well, to be able to sleep well. So what does the American dream mean to you? Because you are the American dream. Well, that's what I want to communicate. And I'm working, trying to working with a number of groups now. This has opened up a whole new area for me. I didn't realize there are 27 groups that deal with foster kids across the country. I'm dealing with one in Boston right now. There's 72 kids in colleges in Boston. I want these kids to understand that, that they are very lucky because mm. they can live the American dream. Mm. You know, my kids, Absolutely. And so it's really yeah. kind of, I, I Horatio Alger, I looked out at a hundred these kids and I said, you're really lucky. And they said, what do you mean lucky? You guys can live the American dream. You, in many respects, it's, it's, I, I haven't figured this out yet. But coming from where I came from, I am more grateful all along the way. What does gratitude mean to you, Ed? What does yeah. gratitude mean? Grat gratitude is the most, right now, the, my most important principle. You know, in my book, I talk about principles, and it mm -hmm. evolved from the golden rule. My most important principle then is gratitude. People say, and I'm 85, how are you? I said, I'm grateful. I'm grateful. I'm grateful because I'm grateful all along the way. Everything that's happened to me has gotten better all my life. Yeah. So no experience is ever wasted, right? 
no experience is ever wasted. And if you, yeah. think you have that attitude that you're going to learn from these experiences, they become exciting. But because you're not the victim anymore. No, no, no. Well, no I'm you become the victim. victor. You read the book about the golf course, you'll see that. But then again, I got rejected at the local club. So instead of becoming a victim, I built my own club. That's right. And by the way, Max, you got, you've done a lot of things in your life. You haven't had the greatest experience of all. It's walking up That's to the true. snack bar at the club and the little girl behind Kelly says to you, what's your number? And you say to her, number one. <laughs> <laughs> number one, the founder, the, the founder. founder. Yeah. That was so, you know, we see your name on buildings. What is it for you to see your name on this book? What does that mean to you? Well, you know, it took me seven years. So I, I, as mm -hmm. my, my last ghostwriter said, he said, I could have rewritten the Bible for that. By <laughs> I'm 15 years with my book. I call it the elephant birth. <laughs> no, it's, it, because you really want, it's so hard to convey what you want to communicate. And then when you get done doing that, you got to say, is the person reading it going to understand what you said? Then you got to yeah. separate facts from what you remember. And I had to do mm -hmm. a lot of that as well. And then get it all together so that it's readable. It was 400 pages. I got it down to 250. Because I want it mm. readable. I mean, somebody said you can't put it down. I mean, I, I I kiss them on both cheeks because that's exactly what I want. I want something that's readable because people, if they won't read it, then they won't be they, they won't, won't won't get the message across. But it's a great thing. I think it's 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 what's next for me, by the way. I can now somewhat give up my financial career. I still love the stock market. I still love the the whole the whole financial industry. But this could be what's next for me because I think that if I can help a few kids' lives, mm. then I've really done my job yeah and, you know, you're we're in the same old. position what i i feel the same way that's why you know i do a lot of work with sos with the children's orphanage here because really you know whitney houston said it right that the children are the future and that we really have to lead them and show them the way but you know I, like i said night which is the book that by ellie weisel and this are the only two books that I, in my whole history of reading that i couldn't put down <laughs> well, i I gotta give you a hug i can't do it <laughs> so we're gonna much. because of time of course, no, I appreciate you because, you know, it's stories like this that inspire us not to give up and to ask the question, what's next? So we're going to play a word game just because of time. So I'm going to say a word or a name, and I want to know what it means to you, okay? So we're going to start with the word passion. What does passion mean? The most important thing. Success. De de defined by the person who's looking for it. Philanthropy. Pardon? Philanthropy. The end game. Family. The most important thing. The American dream. Should be good. Everyone should have the American dream. And it's live and willing. Alive and well. Barbara. Love. The road less traveled. I wish everybody has a chance to travel that road. Mm. And if for the class of 21, you know, you do a lot of these, uh, these uh, college speeches, but for the class of 21, for this year, we're all part of this class. And I'm not just talking about the collegiate college. For all of us, this year is a, as a growing year for all of us. What do you want the class of 21 to know? I want them to know that there's more opportunity now than there ever has been in any period of history, especially in the United States. There's more scholarship. There's less prejudice. There are more markets available. This is the first, well, this is not the first time, but in the last 10 or 15 years, the whole world has opened up to anybody who wants to do anything. And you know that better than anybody, being an internationalist. I mean, but in addition, you need less capital. 
You just need more people to do your job. That's the only thing. The message I want to say is there's less individualism today. Everything is collaboration. you got to have mm. partners. And you look at my book, I had good partners, I succeeded. I had no partners or the wrong partners, I failed. So partners are important. And starting off with B1, which is Barbara, you know, finding someone you can share your life with mm. and someone who will support you, who you can support makes the trip a lot easier. Makes that trip on that road less traveled a little easier, a little less bumpy. It sure does. And what do you tell Barbara every night before you two go to bed? We have this rumor. We never, we never go to bed angry, no matter mm -hmm. what. We solve our problem. Either one, or one of either one, either one or the other apologizes. Usually me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I have a friend of mine actually was in Connecticut back in the while ago. On Star ninety nine point nine was the radio station, and she used to do love songs at night. And her closing statement was. Don't go to bed angry. Stay up and fight. It takes a little while, but I just think that's very important. Each day is ended well. And then, yeah. but by the way, I believe marriage is a, the definition is it's, it's a, the best marriage is one of two forgivers. Mm. You know, mm. Somebody else said that. I think Billy Graham or something, but I really believe that you really should forgive because if the person is trying, you know, and we are so different and today's world, mm. we're, Less than half people are married. You know, I, I'm an old timer. I, I believe in marriage. I believe in the partnership. I mean, I, you mm -hmm. can do, do it. You can do it any way you want. I could be a house husband and she could work or but vice mm -hmm. versa. Division of labor really works. You're able mm -hmm. to do what you do well and do it, you know, full time. And then yeah. let the other person do their thing. Yeah. And co-creation. Create it together. Right. Oh, yeah. Create it. Create, then, create nothing, beauty nothing, together. Nothing is simple. No, there's nobody that, you know, nobody's that, that's perfect. That's why I say in hero worship. Take from those heroes things you would like to have and leave the rest alone. And, and absolutely. And, and, and people, one, one great question I got, what are you going to, what would you tell executives? What, what biggest mistake they can make, make the make. And my problem, I, I say it very simply, there are four parts of life, self, family, work, and community, which I, my word for giving back, you're always out of balance and mm -hmm. you got to recognize how out of balance you are. And if you get too out of balance in work, you lose some of the most precious things, which is family. And if you don't give some effort in community, you lose, you lose life. I mean, let me just tell you the most, besides my family, having Sarah Walters, who was an optical engineering major at University mm -hmm. of Rochester, she just got her PhD, and to stand up in front of people, 100 people and say, if it wasn't for Mr. Hajim, I wouldn't be here. Mm. You realize you don't give anything away. I mean, I got mm -hmm. more out of that than anything I've ever given. Absolutely. And, and I've, got, I've got over 200 of those kind of kids, and I want to have... In fact, in my will and in the University of Rochester, a lot of the money that's when I die will go back to scholarship. Beautiful. I, I want to, I'd love to have a hundred, you know, Daisy Soros, who has a scholarship for immigrant children, is my hero. You know, she mm. has these, these immigrants, they're PhDs. I mean, it's her, the list of her, her people are just unbelievable. And I would love yeah. to have something like that. Beautiful. Well, you know what? Like I said at the top of the show, if you can see it in your mind, you can create it in your reality, right? Yes. So, you, so you you're creating it. If you can see you, it in your mind, it takes may, it might take a little longer than you think. It may take yeah. a little more effort than you think. But you can see it in your mind, you can get there. You can get there. You can get there. So we've come to the point where we've gotten here. We've gotten to the end of the show. Time is an illusion. It just went by. I could spend two more hours talking with you. <laughs> we could. We could. We haven't gotten to some of the real interesting stuff, you know. About but you know what? That's why they need to buy the book. <laughs> well, that's, what, that, that's what my wife says it, don't they gotta buy the book <laughs> yeah we got you know it was beautiful i always call my interviews a tango we got to dance through it but we can't show them the end we've got to let them buy the book so for all of you who are listening go buy the book on the road less traveled
by Ed Hedgeem. Hey, Jim, it's a book that you will really inspire, educate. Listen, you all saw the show tonight. You've heard the show with Ed. If you haven't been inspired, well, then you need to listen to the show again and stop what's going around in your outer world and just focus on this moment right now so you can be inspired, motivated, and educated by my guest, Mr. Ed Hedgeem. Before we go, what is one thing you want people to take from the book? Anything is possible. Anything is possible. Yeah, it really is. All hey, is possible. You, you know, who was it? It's in your mind you can create it. But just taking my life and saying, but anything is possible. Mm -hmm. You can, well, you know, I have a statue at the University of Rochester. Mm -hmm. but anything is possible. I mean, this is yeah. a kid with, with a, who came with a leather jacket and ended up with a statue. You know, Forget a kid who came with other. This is a kid who was in five different homes who didn't have his own home. Now he's got a statue, <laughs> right? So anything is possible. And, and, and anything I, is thank possible. you, President. Or or just have, having a golf course. I mean, you know, yeah. I'm a golfer, but having your own golf course. I mean, that's kind of cool, you know. But and that, golf that, that golf course has a charity that's the largest charity on the island now. So we mm -hmm. converted the golf course to an institution. You, yeah. It's just anything is possible. And, but I think it is. the thing is that education is the solution to almost everything or everything. Those are kind Absolutely. of the two messages that really Beautiful. resonate. You know, the, but the, the underlying the stuff, you know, don't be a victim. There's stuff in there that, yeah. that, I, that I did unconsciously or consciously that is worth worth. Well, there are lessons. The third book, when I get to it, is going to be, I'm going to take, I have 32 chapters. Each one's going to be focused on one lesson. I'm going to dig into it. I, I've got that. And list. then you're going to come back. You know, we're a victim to time right now because they're telling me I got to wrap up and I don't want to. Don't be a victim. So gonna, don't be a victim. You'll have to come up. No, not victim, not victim, not victim. But time is the illusion. We've got to wrap this up. The book, On the Road Less Traveled. You know, you had a student say, I want to be here without Ed. Hey, Jim. And I want to be here without you right now because it was awesome having you here on Max and Friends. I truly well, appreciate you. You made and the my book. day, Max. Thank you very and much. And the book. Thank you so much. Well, and you'll come back you, when <laughs> I'm I'm available anytime. And you know what? I'm already seeing it that you and I will have lunch in Demonicos when it reopens. That, that is that's a deal. That is a deal. deal. All, All right. right. <laughs> <laughs> so until next time, take care of you. Take care of each other. I love you all for tuning in. My guest again, Mr. Ed. Hey, Jim. Hey, here's my message for you all for this week. Love one another more than ever. Now's the time for you to spread the love that you have with inside of you. If you feel like it's not in you, look in the mirror and tell yourself, I love you. And then take that love and wrap it around someone else this week. I love you for tuning in. Until next time, remember to take life to the max. I'm your host, Max Tuesday. Good night and good Yeah.